Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an American actor, film director, comedian and filmmaker. He's best known for directing Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy and Ghostbusters. He created the comedy series Freaks and Geeks and Other Space. He's also directed several episodes of the US version of The Office. His latest book is Cocktail Time, The Ultimate Guide to Grown-Up Fun on how to make the best cocktails, how to throw the best parties, what music to play, what glassware you need and more, along with 125 cocktail recipes from him and his famous friends, each served alongside funny insider stories about his Hollywood life. Paul Feig, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much, Georgina. It's Feig like... Feig, as if it were two E's. Yes, it's, it's been the bane of my existence, my name. No <laughs> no one can pronounce it, and, and they always get it horrendously wrong. Well, but why not Feig? Surely most Feigs are Feig. It should be Feig. It, it, technically, it should be Feig, but for some reason, my family always said Feig, and uh, I, I don't even I, I know if I can blame it on sort of Hungarian pronunciation. I think it's just my family was illiterate, and we've, we've just stuck with it. <laughs> but I think Feig sounds better than Feig. <laughs> well, so here is the thing about your family. How does a man like you, I'm looking at you, you are impeccably dressed, I'm told by our very good mutual friend Kathy Let, you are witty, you're urbane, and obviously <laughs> well, we'll you, li- you like a drink. But you are from Michigan yes. and a Christian scientist family. Yes, yes, brought up with no alcohol in the house whatsoever, no visits to the doctor. Yeah, it was my... Uh, my grandmother, well, both, I mean, both sides of my family. My, my parents met through the Christian Science Organization, and uh, but my grandmother on my father's side was Jewish. But there was a time back in the early 20s, apparently, when a lot of a lot of Jews converted to, to Christian science for some reason. And so, yeah, so I got, I was brought up in that. I, I'm not practicing. But, um, you know, it was an interesting, interesting way to grow up because I always would look at grown-up life and watch a TV show like um, Bewitched, which was a, a sitcom in the U.S., and... And Darren, the husband, would always come home from work and they would make a martini and all this. I was like, I want to do that, <laughs> living in this house where you can't drink and all that. So clearly, clearly the drink won out. <laughs> <laughs> well, your first encounter with cocktails and the whole kind of glamour of that sort of life came on a visit to Las Vegas. But what on earth were your Christian scientist parents doing <laughs> taking you to Las Vegas at the age of five? Yeah, exactly. Well, they, they were going because they wanted to go see this Muhammad Ali fight. They were pretty cool, I got to say, for even, you know, for people who didn't drink, they they liked like social life and they liked kind of nightlife and all that kind of thing. So yeah, so they went to Las Vegas to see uh, this fight and took me through the casino because at that time, for some reason, the nursery was on the edge of the casino. So we kind of walk around the, the edge of the casino, which is like, the casino is like a big pit at that time. So you kind of be on this upper level and then they put you in this room It had a big glass door and then you're just in there staring out at this adult wonderland of people smoking and drinking and gambling and they're wearing tuxedos and it's so glamorous. And as a five-year-old, I would just, my face pressed against the window saying, like, that's what I want to be, you know, and, and I never wanted to be a kid. So, <laughs> And I've never gotten past the desire to recreate what I saw that day. Well, of course, that really kind of came to fruition during lockdown because yeah. that's when you started your Instagram show, Quarantine Time. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, right at the beginning of lockdown, I was uh, in North Carolina. 
Carolina shooting a, a TV pilot and had to shut it down because obviously because of uh, COVID and got back to Los Angeles. And I remember just thinking like, I'm just going to be sitting here. You know, I could get writing done, but we're going to be locked up for months potentially. And I wanted to help somehow. So I thought, well, if I can raise money for first responders and all that by doing like an Instagram live show. And I used to, I had all these um, old cocktail books and I knew how to make martinis and, and, and Negronis, but I never really delved into mixology deeply and thought, well, maybe I'll just, you know, we'll have fun. I'll learn how to make cocktails on camera. We'll raise money and I'll dance and be an idiot and all that. <laughs> and it was fun. We did it for a hundred days in a row without taking a break. And uh, people, you know, people grew to really kind of rely on it for something to do at five o'clock, something kind of fun. And I would dress up and, you know, my wife, Lori, would dress up too. And uh, it was fun. And you described yourself as everybody's drunk funkle. Yes, that's me. That's me. Your <laughs> drunk fun uncle. <laughs> and she's tipsy fan. So she's your fun aunt. <laughs> but fan doesn't quite work as well as funkle. <laughs> um, but really what this is about, and you, you talk about this a lot, you come back to it again and again in the book, which makes me wonder <laughs> what your early experience of this was, is you keep saying... It's not about being judgmental. Yeah. No judginess. Yeah. My father was very judgmental. It was always lots of, why would that person do this? And why, why, why? And I was like, I always hate the question, why? Unless it's for science reasons. Because why is just questioning somebody's desire or somebody's ambition or just somebody's happiness. And so I never want to be the guy. Here's the thing. I'm trying to draw people to grown-up fun, what I consider to be grown-up fun and being an adult with this book. But it's so easy for them to go like, well, you're, you're calling me, you know, you're calling me names or you're being judgmental against me because you think I'm not living as cool as you are. It's like, no, I have no judgment. I'm just here to say, if you want to step it up, come with me and it's going to be fun. Because that's the biggest thrust of this book is like, it's fun to be a grown-up. It can be fun to be a grown-up. It can be terrible too, but we can have, we got to have fun times if we make them. Yeah. And work hard, play hard to, to, exactly. to use a, a cliches because you're famous for using so-called French hours when you work in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, French hours, normally, normal hours are 12 hour days with a one-hour lunch in the middle of them. But because of that one-hour lunch, you can then go into overtime, and most most movies and TV shows go into overtime and work tend to work like 15, 16-hour days, which are really inhuman. And so I do what's called French Hours, which started in, in Europe, and uh, it's 10 hours... No lunch. There's constantly food being passed around, brought around, so you can always be kind of eating. But then at the end of 10 hours, you pull the plug. So there's no overtime or anything. And, you know, it's, so it's up to the director to be able to to do that and plan out their day accordingly. But then everybody has dinner with their families, and you can go out, and you, you're you not tired, you know, and, and all that. So so it's, it, to me, it's the most civilized way to work. Yeah, and you can have a cocktail, of course. Well, of course. So <laughs> growing up in Detroit... You finally kind of encounter bars. What do bars mean to you? Well, bars when I was growing up were really scary places. First of all, you know, Christian science parents anyway, so you drive past them like, don't even look at that bar. But really, I mean, in the U.S., especially in the Midwest, like bars are bunkers. They are these windowless buildings that are just sitting kind of on the street in the middle of nowhere between other buildings. And they, you know, have kind of sometimes scary names like Joe's and Rocco's and all that, or else they're puns, you know, and like, you know, the, the poor house and all that kind of thing. But they were places where you go in and you hunch over the bar and, you know, and I would watch TV shows as a kid and, you know, like these cop shows and they'd always be in those bars and there'd be a bar fight and people breaking pull cues over people's heads. So, yeah, to me, they were just very intimidating places. And so coming to London, of course, was an eye opener. Yeah, I was walking down the street one of the first times I was here. 
And it was around like five o'clock, you know, quitting time for people. And I see this giant crowd out on the street. I'm like, oh, was there an evacuation or something? <laughs> and no, it was a pub. And it was after work at the pub. And people were out on the street drinking. And the pub had big windows. And people were inside. There were even some kids in there drinking with their parents, you know, having soda or whatever. And I was like, this is so civilized because it's not so puritanical you know you just feel like those bars in the u.s are just places of shame of like you know oh you're shame that you're drinking and i just thought it was just such a healthy attitude towards towards what alcohol can be mm. of course you weren't always so civilized you had a, a rebellious <laughs> period in yes. your 20s in santa monica yes i did i i i've lived in la for over 40 years now and when i first got there i just didn't like it you know i was a midwestern kid and it was very it was so hollywood back then and what you know I consider to be pretentious a lot of times. And yeah, so I, I was trying to rebel against it. And I got invited by some friends to this very trendy restaurant. And so I was like, I'm going to show them. So I wore like shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and this ratty Hawaiian shirt and tennis shoes. And, you know, and it just looked terrible. And I come kind of walking in like, <laughs> hey, I'm showing them. Uh -huh, screw these people. And then I just was sitting there. And they're, they're like, what are you doing? And it's like, hey, I'm. And then I immediately kind of lost the, the feeling of rebellion and just felt like an idiot because, like, here's all these nice people dressed up, having a nice evening. Some clearly are there for anniversaries and birthdays. And I'm making some pointless statement about I don't know what. And that was kind of the moment of like, all right, grow up. <laughs> now, some people can make fairly pointless statements or snobbish statements yeah. about particularly wine, the right way to drink yeah, wine. Yeah. And you tell one wonderful story about being in an Indian restaurant here in London. <laughs> yeah, well, we were there. It was a, a good friend of ours, uh, my, my group at the time, uh, was French. And his brother came along, his older brother came along, who was, it was, it was, it was slightly insufferable. <laughs> and, yeah, the waiter came over with the wine. And, you know, he's pouring wine. All of a sudden I hear this, like, no, what are you doing? Oh, this guy's getting all mad because the waiter had, had poured the wine too high. You know, because, you know, what you're supposed Supposed to do is you know the bowl shape you're supposed to go to the widest part of the of the bowl and you know the, of the glass and not go past that you know and he said it crushes the wine which I don't know if I buy that but crushes the wine I you know it, it's been sitting in the bottle on top of each other so I don't quite understand but he was very adamant about it but now I actually but I, he was right in the sense of you're not supposed to fill past that part especially like in a restaurant because that just means they're trying to burn through the bottle to get you buy another bottle so so even though his his methodology was not correct I I, I thought. Okay, well, I, I learned a lesson. But, yeah, I try to stay away from wine snobbery as much as I can. Now, you directed a dinner party episode of The Office. Yeah. Tell us about how drinking kind of comes into to all of that. <laughs> well, the I mean, the, the funny thing in The Office to me was, well, there's a couple of jokes. My favorite joke ever is, is um, our, our two heroes, uh, you know, Pam and Jim, they bring a bottle of wine to uh, Michael's, at the time, fiancé. And uh, she goes, oh, this will be great to cook with. <laughs> That's the <laughs> ultimate insult you can say if someone brings you wine. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you talk about bottles and how to stock your bar and, and how intimidating, actually, sometimes it can be to have... Have all these bottles and I know I just I recently did a, a kind of um, audit of mm. what was you know in my cupboard and there were all these dusty bottles of horrible <laughs> liqueurs particularly stuff one brings back from holiday <laughs> yes, oh, and I, you always think you oh I can't live without this and, exactly. and then you open never open it <laughs> but but as you point out if you don't have everything you might disappoint your guests yeah well I mean you know it's it's the slippery slope that I talk about in the book of once you get into mixology and want to start kind of making things for your guests you have to manage that 
Yeah, you have to kind of go, okay, let's start with these drinks, you know, which will have a limited a number of ingredients. And then you can expand out from there, but you really do become a bottle museum at, at a certain point because, yeah, like yourself, we've got a million different liqueurs, you know, Kummel and, I mean, Swedish Punch. I mean, all these obscure things, creme de everything. But it, but it's fun. You know, it's I, I always kind of think my bar at home in L.A. is like a test kitchen because I create cocktails. And so I'm like, oh, let's, you, you basically pull bottles down and kind of smell these things. Go, Would these go together? So it's kind of fun. You're like a mad scientist, mad drunk scientist. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you should also know how big parties should be when you decide to have a party. Yeah. I know you've had some pretty bad experiences at parties, <laughs> particularly uh, with Meryl Streep. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of social anxiety uh, when I'm around people I don't know, especially in Hollywood. And you're going in, you know, you're going to be famous people there who you admire. And yes, yeah, so I was at this Golden Globes party and was like, OK, let's have a martini to just kind of, you know, relax. So I get one and I go, oh, my God, there's Meryl Streep. I'm like, you know, I'm going to go say hi to Meryl Streep. Go over. Ah, Ms. Streep, I'm Paul Feig. I directed Bridesmaids. It's just such an honor to meet you. Oh, thank you. So you're so kind. We talk for a couple minutes and then I head off feeling very proud of myself. Then I'm circling around the party, getting looser, have another martini. And then I'm like, hey, look, it's Meryl Streep. <laughs> I go over and reintroduce myself. She's like, oh, nice to see you again. And I walk away. And then a few more martinis later, I'm like, oh, it's Meryl Streep. And then my wife fortunately kind of intervenes. But I'm already going like for the third time. Hello, Miss Streep. I'm Paul Figs. So, uh, so now there's a rule that I only have one martini at a party. <laughs> Uh, and, and of course it is the, though down to who you invite and who's there and of course yeah. you've got a fabulous kind of guest list you can draw on. One of those as I mentioned is our mutual friend Cathy Lett yes. who is this Australian very funny novelist. Yeah very funny novelist but the most skillful party thrower I've ever met in my life and, and it's such a skill. It's like it's like from the, the old days of you know uh, <laughs> Truman Capote parties and all that where she just knows how to invite such a diverse group of people of like there's a scientist and there's an author and then there's a politician and then you know a dance you know a choreographer but but from every walk of life and and it's just brilliant i was just at a party at her house last night and met a bunch of people i would never normally meet fantastic yeah. fantastic now you also talk in the book about dressing up and particularly <laughs> there's a wonderful line about a rented tux <laughs> that is a friend of mine <laughs> there's something there's nothing worse than a rented tux and he says uh, i don't want to wear something that a teenager had sex in <laughs> so you know prom night something happened probably in that tux so yeah, buy your own tux, fellas. Come on. <laughs> I mean, and you do talk about in the in the book about how you take care with your appearance and everything. One story that doesn't come up in the book, but that I happen to know oh. from our mutual friend Kathy, is that she took you for a dog walk on Hampstead Heath, oh, yeah. and you turned up in your complete. Deer stalker, tweed jacket. Yes. Yeah, there was my uh, the courting's special. <laughs> my, yeah, I, I I love old British kind of affectations and, and, and style and all that. And yeah, so I, I got this pair of breeks and then a lovely uh, tweed outfit. And yeah, I walked around there and I think a lot of people started taking my picture like I was like a guy in costume. So I, I was doing doing English cosplay basically. Well, and you seem to love cosplay, particularly moustaches. You say moustaches make part. He's go with a bang. Well, yes, it's my friend uh, uh, Tanya Idol, who's who's married to Eric Idol from Monty Python, and she. We were one of the first times we were at her house for a party. You know, the party was going fine, but all of a sudden she brought this little uh, silver box out, opened it up, and it was filled with fake mustaches, and she started handing them out. 
and we all put them on, and the party just went into overdrive. It was just everybody just loosened up and had the most fun time. So it's the weirdest kind of thing of, like, tip for a party, like, pull out the fake mustaches and get ready. And drink a fig teeny. Well, definitely do that. <laughs> That's going to help. That's your own version of the martini. Well, yeah, it's one I invented that, that uh, actually has all, it, you know, it's gin, and then it's Cointreau and, and sake. And it's in, in orange bitters, I think. And it's really, really good. And you go through all of these cocktails and they all have wonderful stories. So, for instance, you tell us about drinking Singapore slings in Raffles Hotel in Hong Kong with Melissa McCartney. Yeah, yeah. When we were there, yeah, when we were uh, promoting um, Ghostbusters, we, we went through there. And, uh, yeah, I was like, we have to go to Raffles. That's the famous place. And it was, you know, spectacular. But those go down very, very easily, let's just say. And is Melissa a good drinking companion? From seeing her in Bridesmaids, one would imagine so. Yeah, she is. She is. She's a lot of fun. We've had many, many a, a good drinking Evening. She she likes a good scotch. That's her thing. Yeah. Now another drink that you highlight is El Presidente, but it gives mm. you a wonderful opportunity to tell us about <laughs> your failure as class president. <laughs> yes, I uh, yeah I, I dipped into the world of politics in sixth grade. They were going to elect a class president, and I was like, I want that. I just want to be that person. So campaigned very hard, made lots of promises like free pizza and I'll do your homework for you and we'll have a party every I mean things I could never clearly deliver on and was voted in in an overwhelming victory and then didn't do any of the things and you know, people come up like hey where's our pizza I was like I don't know you know I didn't really mean it or whatever and so there's a lot of discontent and then uh, a lot of grumbling and then one day my teacher um, goes well how what do people think of Paul as class president and boo and all this and she goes well in government there's a, a thing called impeachment uh, so maybe let's let Let's let's practice that. So I got impeached. It's my sixth grade president. Oh, a scarring experience? No, no. It it actually taught me a lesson to go. Don't fall in love with the quest. You know, you got to actually want what you're questing. Mm. Now you're actually Canadian. Well, I am officially uh, part Canadian now. My mom was Canadian, and uh, when when Donald Trump got in, I was like, okay, got got to get some exit plan here. And and Trudeau had said back then, like, hey, come on, you know, he he loosened the rules for getting citizenship, and I'd been trying for years to get it because of my mom who had passed away, but. I was an actor at the time and thought I could probably get more work in Canada, hopefully. But then four years later, once Biden got in, suddenly they're like, hey, you're Canadian. I was like, oh, oh that's right. I did that. But, but I'm very proud. I'm very proud of half Canadian. Um, an actor, you've also been a stand-up. Now, I have to tell you that Kathy said a very bad stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I, you know, I, was, uh, I had my own style, let's just say. <laughs> I, I made my living at it for about five years, but, uh, yeah, I, I kind of couldn't wait to get out of it. I did more kind of characters and all kinds of stuff and yeah it was not not my thing mm. falling in love yes tell us about your wife because there's a, a, a lovely kind of meat story and then the fact that you really don't like weddings but you did have a wedding yeah no we, we definitely had a wedding yeah no I mean I met my wife in in Los Angeles she was a, a manager well actually I met her the first time a couple of times at parties where she was just there and I didn't even we didn't even talk but I always thought she was kind of cute and once I walked into this one party and she like ran over and jumped on me because it turned out she had seen this um seen a, a short film that I was in because she was a manager at the time managing actors and, and really liked me and then just started she started pursuing me and actually we were, we were she was my manager but then it very quickly blossomed into a, a relationship and then four years later we got married in Las Vegas and had a, had a really great wedding that people still talk about to this day 28 years later how good it was. Why was it so 
so good. It was just fun. It was, I don't like weddings. And what I don't like about weddings is all this waiting around time. You know, you're waiting for them to take pictures and you're waiting for the, and the service takes forever. And then you got to wait forever to get the food and the reception. And then they never bring the cake out. So I said, we're, oh, here's what we're doing. We're getting married in Vegas. It's going to be fun anyway. Uh, we'll have everybody there. You're going to sit at the table you're going to eat at. Our wedding ceremony is going to take five minutes. When it's over, I turn and said they were married. Food is served and the buffet was open. Everyone ate. And then every table had an individual wedding cake on it. And it was just like, cut it whenever you want. Just take a picture of everybody when you cut it. And that's the only rule. What a great idea. It was fun. So not liking weddings, how did you end up directing Bridesmaids? <laughs> I know. It's, fu- it's funny. Actually, when I took it on, my, my production designer, I was meeting with him. He's like, why are you making this movie? I was like, I, I think it could be really funny and I've been dying to do a movie with you know with an all-female cast yeah it was you know to me it's not a wedding movie it's really about a friendship it's not even a romantic comedy as far as I'm concerned because it's really that core friendship of these two women and and them trying to save that friendship and one getting the maturity to move on from that yeah now of course the puppies in that is a scene that will always (laughs) stay in my mind and I have to say could you just admire the fact that my dog is being very well behaved very well behaved (laughs) I I forgot she was here and she's so cute have your own dog, Buster. Yes. Uh, and you also have a couple of cocktail recipes for a greyhound and a salty dog. Yes, there you go. Very uh, very grapefruit-based drinks. Uh, they're pretty much basically just like a screwdriver, but with grapefruit juice. Just one has a salted rim and the other doesn't. Sounds absolutely lovely. I want to just circle back to being a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the Algonquin. Well, the Algonquin Roundtable was that famous uh, group that had, like, Dorothy Parker and, and Harpo Marx and, you know, and, and James Wolcott and all these people. And I just think that's the most glamorous thing in the world. So I, when I was a stand-up, we had this place in the back of the valley uh, these guys lived in called The Ranch. And it was this really crummy, rundown house. But all the us comedians would go there every night and, and after our gigs and just stay up all night until dawn playing poker and they all smoked we didn't drink at the time and just drinking coffee and just making each other laugh so that kind of came our Algonquin round table for, for a number of years some cocktail recipes from your friends Kylie Yes. Loves the pink pearl. She does. Yeah, yeah. She sent she sent us that that delicious uh, drink recipe. Uh, you know, Kylie's so sweet. And, you know, she would watch the show all the time. And I would always dance to her music because I love Kylie's music anyway. And, uh, yeah, and she was nice enough to give us a give us a drink for the book. Now, when I was uh, going through the book and making notes, I've just jotted down here, and I have no recollection what it means, but I hope you can enlighten me. Mm-hmm. Ski patrol, full stop, erections. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's on you that you wrote that down. <laughs> no, I was <laughs> I was in a movie called Ski Patrol, uh, which was uh, an attempt by the there. There used to be a uh, a series of uh, comedy movies called Police Academy, and the, so the people that did that were trying to start a new thing with the Ski Patrol. And I got cast as Stanley, who was sort of the nerdy um, got wannabe who he wanted to join the Ski Patrol. But in the original version of the script, it was an R-rated script, and my problem was uh, that I had uncontrollable erections. That was supposed to be my character's arc. Uh, <laughs> so I had to do all these auditions, kind of ducking behind couches and all this kind of thing. And then fortunately when we made the movie, they, they wanted to make it more of a family film, and so they cut that out. And I was very, very grateful to not have that be my first, my screen debut. 
<laughs> have you ever been tempted to go back into acting? Because I mean, you're much better known as a as a director now. I mean, I, I people will let will ask me to do it, and, and I will do it when somebody you know offers it up, and it's really fun for me. But I also I have a lot of stress with it because I've sort of lost that ability to memorize tons of lines. You know, just for no other reason than it's just a muscle you have to have, and then yeah. I also get kind of anxiety about it too. And I had a terrible thing happen when uh, I, I produced this show called uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist that was on for a couple of years in a musical show. And the, the creator of it said, I want you to be on the show, so I'm going to write this role for you as, to play this undertaker, so a funeral director. So uh, they gave me this scene, and it's just a giant speech that I make. And I'm like, oh, God. So I'm trying to memorize the speech, and I, I just have it. So I can just do this. So I get on the set, and the director comes over and says, all right, so when you say this, you're going to hand this thing to them. Then you're going to go into the thing. You're going to do all this stuff. He gave me all this business, and it just, it was gone. Completely, the whole speech was gone out of my head. And we just start to roll, and I'm just, like, get two lines in. I'm like, uh, and I'm in front of the stars of the show, and it's so embarrassing. And finally, I go, like, you know what? You guys can't fire me because uh, I'm the executive producer of the show. So guess what you're going to do? You're going to write up cue cards and you're going to put them over the camera and I'm going to read my part. And I did. <laughs> well, you talk about anxiety, but you've also suffered with depression. And in fact, you talk about that when you give us the recipe for the gloom lifter. Yes, exactly. No, I, I, I always had a lot of problem with depression. I, I don't quite know why. It was just I was an only child, but I had a happy growing up. I just think, you know, the pressures of trying to make it in a business that is hard to be in and, you know, and the ups and the downs of all that. So, yeah, so I, I, you know, I struggled with that. But then I read this article when I was in London, actually, I think it was in the, the Times or whatever, about Charles Dickens suffered from depression and he would just walk. He would just walk from one end of London to the other. And so that suddenly became my therapy. And ever since I've been a walker and I, you know, I walk like four miles every morning is my kind of my exercise. It's really, you know, I, I don't have many problems with it. It's really only when you get in these times when you're busy and you can't can't do that, that suddenly you're like, oh, God, I got to get I got to get active. So, I mean, being active is just such an important thing exercise not even exercise like going to the gym just being out and also just as a writer and a creative person i want to be out looking at people and experiencing life and all that that that's where you get the inspiration for things yeah now there is one thing i am going to be forever grateful to you for it apart from the fact that i now know how to throw a great party ah. how to mix a great cocktail <laughs> what playlist to choose but it's a story that you tell off the back of a cocktail called the greenback and it's about feeling obliged to entertain. Yeah, it was when I was, I mean, my whole childhood, you know, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to be a comedy guy, and I just wanted to be the life of the party. And so whenever I go to parties, I, you know, I was funny. I was I was good at it and really could entertain the place and just be on all, all the time. But, yeah, it was one day when I was in college, and a friend was going, oh, I want to go to this party. Come with me. I was like, I don't. I don't have the energy to be the life of the party. And he goes, why do you have to be the life of the party? I said, well, I don't know, I guess. He said, just come and just be there and have fun. And I did. And I was like, oh, God, I, I guess I don't need to be working the party like like a hired clown or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, but it, it's it's a thing that comedians have, you know. It, it's in our DNA to want to take center stage. And where do you think that comedy DNA comes from in, in your own self? Uh, for me, I just I, I'm such a people pleaser that the ultimate people pleasing is to make somebody laugh. And I just like happy things. You know, as a kid, I could never I hated watching dramatic movies. And when I was funny, it was on, on film school. You know, when you're in film school, everybody's so serious and they want to be Godard and all this stuff, at least when I was going in the 80s. And all I was doing is writing comedies and making cartoons and stuff like this. And I had one teacher. He said, 
Was there something tragic in your life that, that makes you not want to ever, you know, do anything dramatic? It's like, no, I just want to make people laugh. I don't, I, I just find that's my thing. I just, I enjoy it. Just getting that response and being the person that makes people hopefully feel a little bit better or take away their troubles. That's why I like making my movies. We're never going to win awards, but we don't care at the end of that. You kind of do care. Because <laughs> you're kind of like, we work really hard on these, you know. These aren't easy to do, but but people discount comedy because in order to do comedy effectively it has to look very easy like if comedy works really hard it's not funny and you're like ugh, you know but then if you do it right then people go like oh you just showed up and you were funny it's like no no not really how it works (laughs) in the recipe for robin's rest you say that what you really want is just to give things a shot that you're always willing to try and uh, i guess that's how i'd like to end it is ask what are you going to give a shot next (laughs) me um gosh i i well i mean for me i'm so lucky now that i get to be in the business i i'm in as a film director because i make movies but what's great about movies is you could always make something different you could always try to make something different and for me it's just I'm trying to figure out what genres I want to do next I'm dying to do a musical next I want to do a western I'd love to do a big space epic so it's all kind of within my uh, my business that I, I will do different things Paul let's go and have a cocktail yes let's do it right now <laughs> I know how to mix one Cocktail Time by Paul Feig is out now. It's published by HarperCollins and it's fabulous. It's absolutely everything you need to know about being the perfect host. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Emily Sands. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>